What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then... Place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager. Only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Chances are you've never even heard of him. Yet without him, we wouldn't have shows or movies like The Walking Dead, Resident Evil, Night of the Living Dead, or Shaun of the Dead. That's because travel writer William Seabrook was the first to really introduce the idea of zombies to popular culture. This was back in 1929 with his smash hit account of his travels in Haiti called The Magic Island. And if you were to Google his name, that's often how he's described. That's all he's described as, as simply the man who brought zombies to America. But as is the case with us human beings, we are always more than just one fact. And William Seabrook was way more. From hexing Hitler, to stealing camels in the Arabian desert, to eating human flesh, to paying women to act like dogs, his life is a breathless shocking and head-spinning series of adventures and experimentation that would see him traveling to the deepest parts of the earth, but also to the deepest parts of his own sexual desires and confusions. He was a man searching for something. Peace. Truth. After you hear his astonishing story, you can decide for yourself if you think you found it. But for now, at the start, you better brace yourself, because his search for meaning might just make your head spin. I'm Peter Laws, and today on Our Curious Past, we explore the truly wild life of William Seabrook. William Bueller Seabrook was born in Westminster, Maryland in the USA on the 22nd of February, 1884. He had a brother called Charlie, who he didn't like very much. Seabrook wasn't really sure why. In fact, later when he wrote his autobiography, he listed all of the reasons why he should have liked his brother, but he just didn't. Some biographers of Seabrook's life suggest that he was jealous because his mother seemed to love Charlie more than him. He certainly had a complicated relationship with his mother, which would go on to influence his relationship with women later in life. Myra, his mother's name, was an interesting person. She was the beautiful daughter of a prominent family in Gettysburg, But over the years, her three pregnancies seemed to change her appearance and her demeanor. And for some reason, William really struggled with the change in her looks, but also her grumpy, bossy attitude. 
Now, Seabrook's father, who was also called William, had been a successful lawyer. But when Seabrook was eight years old, his dad had a rather drastic career change. He decided he would leave the law and train instead as an itinerant church minister. This decision was pretty radical, that a man could drop a perfectly respectable career for a far less financially stable one. And while Seabrook would later write that his father had a mediocre mind, I think he was probably influenced by his dad more than he thought, because this career change of his dad's would actually influence Seabrook later in his own career, because as you'll hear, he had a habit of getting perfectly decent jobs and then abandoning them for something a little more wild. So his dad went off to seminary along with the rest of the family while Seabrook lived with his grandparents. His grandfather wrote for the Temperance League newspaper. This temperance movement was basically preaching the benefits of a life without alcohol. That would come to feature in Seabrook's life very strongly later. But for him, he would see his grandfather writing and he too would start to dream that perhaps he could become a writer as well. His grandfather was in print. What happens if he did that one day? But really his biggest influence there was from his grandmother called Piney, who was, how can I put it, a little weird. She would have strange visions and claim to have supernatural powers. She would sometimes even visit a jar in the basement that she claimed held her soul. Piney encouraged Seabrook to look beyond the ordinary and to find the strange wonder of the world. For those around her, she was a mental, unstable case who had hallucinations. She was, after all, addicted to opium. But for Seabrook, he related to his grandmother more than anybody else. She had a desire to look beyond the mundane. On one occasion, he even claimed to have had a paranormal experience with his grandmother. They were walking together in the woods when Seabrook said that the forest turned strange. Before him, he saw that the trees were turning into the giant legs of beautiful, bright, plumaged roosters, which were as tall as houses. Pretty wild stuff. He also had another vision, and that was to influence the rest of his life. He said his grandmother once took him to an ancient stone tower at the top of a hill, and when he entered it, he saw a woman inside, in green robes and golden clogs sitting on a throne. And in the vision, he saw that her wrists and ankles were chained with metal clamps, He wrote that this vision of the woman in chains caused him to tremble with happiness. This would be a desire that would continue for the rest of his life. Seabrook grew up and went to Newbury College in South Carolina, starting in 1902. And to everybody else, he seemed to be doing pretty well at college. He even won an essay contest for an article about respecting authority. But ironically, this wasn't really William's personal philosophy. In fact, he later admitted that he paid another student to write the essay for him. He planned to travel after college, but his parents got him a clerk's job instead at a rail freight company. They were keen that he earned some decent money, which was particularly important now that his father wasn't bringing much money in as an itinerant minister. But Seabrook absolutely hated this job as a clerk with the rail company. And he was depressed about it. And on one occasion, he poured out his heart to his landlady, saying that the job was a nightmare and that his dream was to instead become a writer. She said go for it. But that he also added another dream of his, that he loved thinking about tying women up. Yeah, William Seabrook was what you might call an 
oversharer. Anyway, she kind of backed away from that, but for him, he managed to move on from the rail job and he got a position as an errand boy for the Augusta Chronicle. And in time, he was able to start writing a few news stories for them. And most of the stories were trivial and not particularly inspiring. Until one day, the paper assigned him on what looked like just another fluff piece to cover the county fair. And yet the story that he came up with that day was to change the course of his writing career. Any other writer would have just turned up at the country fair and wrote about what he or she saw there. But on that day, Seabrook decided that a piece on the country fair would be way more interesting if he was to insert himself into the story. He saw a wild parachute challenge, and he decided that he would do it himself and write about it. And what's more, he would get a photograph of himself risking his life for the story. When he got back to the office and handed in his story, the editor was delighted. This exciting little piece even ended up getting Seabrook promoted to the role of city editor. But once again, even though it was a perfectly good job, he was bored because he wanted to see the world. And so, perhaps inspired by his father, who quit his law job and joined the ministry, Seabrook quit his really rather decent job at the Augusta Chronicle and hopped on a ship. He headed out to Switzerland to learn more about metaphysics and philosophy and to find himself. And along the way, he was doing odd jobs, like a farm laborer to pay his way. And he said he was very happy during this part of his life. But even he knew that at some point he'd need to get some financial stability. So he headed back to America where he started to write about opera for the Atlanta Journal. His work was so good that it boosted opera ticket sales and the paper were really pleased with him. But still, he moved on from that job to help found an advertising agency, which was successful. In fact, he started to become quite wealthy and he even got married around this time to a woman called Kate. But as you can see with Seabrook, he wasn't a big fan of normal life, however successful. In fact, he described his advertising years as... I was a rat. A sleek rat caught in a bright, clean, shiny trap. A dirty rat. Dirtier than the tramp had ever been. So he sold his share of the advertising business and left to join the American Field Ambulance Service in the war in France. And while he was out there, he decided to keep writing. And he wrote about his experiences. And these so impressed the people who read them that they ended up being printed and published to help raise funds for the army. And this was the one role in his life that he didn't run from. But he did have to leave on medical grounds after he was being gassed at Verdun in 1916. And so because of this, he headed back to America where he ended up running a cotton farm. But of course, something like that would not satisfy William Seabrook. So he headed off to New York, where his sex life took a turn. It happened after hanging around with a puppeteer friend of his called Tony Sarg. He introduced him to another woman called Deborah Riss. She was also a puppeteer, and he was smitten with her. And he sent her a letter, and he boldly asked her if she would like to join him for some kinky sex with chains and bondage. She replied, sure, why not? It might be fun. And so Seabrook hopped on a train, bought some locks and chains, and then spent a week in her apartment 
He said he barely left that room all week. He wrote this of the encounter. When people uncork parallel, a complimentary chimeric wish fantasy sparks generally fly, and so they did. So he began an affair with this woman, though he still felt very much in love with his wife, Kate. In fact, it seems that the two of them were both happy to have an open relationship. Katie didn't really share his kinks, but they had affection for one another, and so the relationship was pretty much platonic. So Katie let Seabrook sleep with Deborah and tie her up. At least that meant she didn't have to deal with that weird stuff she felt herself. There was another man living in New York at the time, and it was the notorious British occultist Alistair Crowley. And soon the two men met and became friends. Seabrook really loved hanging out with Alistair Crowley, especially since when he turned up at Crowley's apartment, the door was opened by a naked high priestess of the occult called Lee Hersig. Finally, Seabrook was meeting people on his wavelength, and he joined Crowley's coven, though in later years he would fall out of favor with Crowley. So he was working as a reporter for the New York Times at one point, and his ambitions for travel, however, could not be buried when, in 1925, he met a Lebanese student in New York. His name was Dawood Isidin. He told amazing stories about the Arab world, including talk of slave women. And a few weeks later, Seabrook left his writing job in the US and was headed already over to Beirut in Lebanon. His plan was to go and live with the Bedouins in an Arabian desert, and while he was there, he would write about his adventures. And this was really where he thrived. When he was in strange and unusual situations, dangerous ones at that, that's when his imagination came to life. So Seabrook threw himself into a wild ride in the desert. He'd even sometimes join the Bedouins as they raided camps and stole camels and horses. And he took time for sexual adventures when he was there too. Rumors were that whenever he traveled anywhere, he would take a suitcase full of whips and chains. After two years of adventuring in the desert, he returned to the US and wrote the book that would be the breakthrough of his literary career. It was called Adventures in Arabia. The critics loved it, and it became a bestseller. And so, after decades of unsatisfying jobs, William Seabrook, now in his 30s, was doing what he loved, experiencing adventures and then writing about them. And what really made him stand out was that Seabrook was a white man who seemed very happy and prepared to visit and live in non-white environments. And so he was bringing a new world to many of the readers. Now Seabrook needed a follow-up to Adventures in Arabia which would lead him to write the most influential book of his entire career, when he headed out to Haiti to write about voodoo. And in doing so, he would end up bringing something back to the intention of the world that still is with us today. Zombies. Join me next time in the second and final episode where we see Seabrook's already astonishing life and desires move into total overdrive with cannibalism, Nazi hexes, asylums, and so much more. But for now, I'm Peter Laws, and you've been listening to our curious past on zombies, cannibals, and SM, the truly wild life of William Seabrook.
I'm back again on the street Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich, flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today.